Unfortunately, the following sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is incomplete, as the closing remarks by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones are missing. This was due to the master tape running out before the end of the sermon, but we hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of this sermon. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the first two verses of the 40th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. The first two verses in that chapter which we read together at the beginning. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now this, I think, by any computation, or from any angle whatsoever, must be regarded as one of the greatest and the most eloquent and moving chapters which is to be found anywhere in the Bible. It is one of those mighty statements, which indeed we can say quite safely and certainly is never to be found outside the Bible itself. For language and for balance, phrasing and for the thought and for the lilt and the cadence of the expression, it's quite incomparable. And therein perhaps lies a certain danger with respect to this great chapter. And that is that one can read it merely in a kind of literary or artistic or aesthetic manner such as that and thereby fail to understand and to realize what it really has to say. For we can be certain that it was never written merely from the standpoint of literature. When Isaiah wrote this, he wasn't concerned to produce a masterpiece of literature. He was a man who was taken hold of by the Holy Spirit of God and inspired and given a message. And what he was concerned about was the message. It's such a great message and such a wonderful message that in a sense a man who truly, truly realizes it cannot help being eloquent. He can't help being gripped by it and being moved by it. And undoubtedly that is what happened in the case of Isaiah. The truth was so grand and so majestic and so overwhelming that language almost fails him. But he does give us this mighty and glorious expression of it. Now his immediate purpose was, his first purpose was, to give a message to the children of Israel. It had been given to this prophet to see beforehand what was going to happen to the nation. That it was going to suffer, that it was going to be conquered and carried away into captivity to a place called Babylon. And he has been telling them all about that in the first part of the book, and describing it to them. But here he now receives a further message. And the further message is that these people are going to be rescued and delivered from the captivity of Babylon, and are again going to be restored to their country and to their city of Jerusalem. 
That is undoubtedly the primary message of this great portion of Scripture. It had a relevant and an immediate message to the children of Israel themselves. It's a prophecy in that sense, an immediate prophecy. And it was a prophecy that was actually verified and fulfilled because they did come back. They were brought back, a remnant was brought back from the captivity. Those who chose to go back went back. And so in that sense, this immediate prophecy was fulfilled. But I call your attention to it this evening rather for another reason. And uh, this again is something which is uh, thoroughly biblical. Because those who are familiar with their scriptures will know that these very verses are quoted, and others, other verses in this chapter, uh, quoted in the first three Gospels, the Gospel according to Matthew and to Mark and to Luke. And uh, there it is made perfectly plain and clear that what we have here and in this great chapter is also, over and above that immediate reference uh, to the case of the children of Israel in the captivity of Babylon, a marvelous foreshadowing and indication of the Christian gospel that was to come. So that it is a prophecy of that which we find described in detail in the pages of the New Testament. And I say it is from that angle that I want to consider these two verses with you tonight. Because the New Testament gospel itself calls upon us to do so. And I'm therefore holding it before you because it is, in a very remarkable manner, a very perfect summary of what the message of the Christian gospel, the Christian faith, really is. It holds us at once face to face with some of the outstanding and fundamental characteristics of the gospel. You see, that is the remarkable thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's foreshadowed in the old and prophesied in the old. Then it came, and you have the description of it and accounts of it in the new. And very often it's a good thing to look at the gospel in these Old Testament pictures and foreshadowings of it. Because there it's put in a simpler form and in a more pictorial manner generally. And therefore it is perhaps easier for us to grasp uh, and to comprehend. And of course I'm doing this for this reason. That there is a great deal still of misunderstanding and confusion in the minds of people as to what this Christian gospel, this Christian message really is. I'm never tired of saying this, and increasingly I find it's true that there are so many people who are not Christians, and there are so many who are outside the Christian church and who haven't perhaps been to a place of worship for many years, for the only reason that their idea as to what Christianity is is entirely and completely false. They've never read the Bible. They've started an assumption. They heard somebody saying something perhaps when they were children, and they've accepted that. Somebody with a prejudice against it dismissed the whole thing, and they've accepted that. And they've spent their whole lives so far in just saying there's nothing in Christianity, it's played out. And the churches are hopeless and useless, money-making concerns, and so on, the usual thing that's being said. And therefore, they've never really considered it. They've no conception at all as to what it is. 
And the result is that when such people really do meet it and hear what it is, they say in increasing numbers, I never knew that it was that. It comes as a great surprise to them. Well, of course, we can understand that. If we take the uh, common ideas uh, as, to, uh, as to Christianity as our standard, well, we must go astray. If we don't come to the book itself, and if we don't believe its message, well, then how can we have a true conception of it? And really, we know nothing about Christianity apart from what we have in this book. It's not a question of what anybody thinks. One man's thought is as good as another. It isn't what I think constitutes Christianity that matters. It's what the Bible says. And we must come back to the Bible and its message. And we must read it and we must study it. And as we do so, we will find, I say, that everywhere it has this one great message, put to us in different ways, presented in different forms, but only one message. And here, in these two verses at the very beginning of this magnificent, moving, eloquent uh, chapter, we have, I say, summarized for us somewhat in order immediately of these essential elements. Now, what are they? Well, let me try to tabulate them for you. The first thing that we must always realize about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it is a message sent by God. It's God speaking here. God is addressing his servants. God gives a message to this man, Isaiah. What is it? Comfort ye, you. I'm addressing you, he says to his servant. I want you to go and comfort my people. I want you to go and bear them a message. I want you to go and tell them something. It's God who's ordering him to do it. It's the almighty God himself. Why do I start with it and why do I emphasize it? Well, my dear friends, if we are not clear about that, we'll never be clear about anything in this respect. The first thing we have to understand about the Christian way of life and the Christian way of salvation is that it is entirely and altogether from God. The greatest tragedy in the world tonight is the view taken by the average person of God. We all of us have been guilty of this, haven't we? We've all rather thought of God as somebody who's against us. There's some awful specter, some awful power, some terrible potentate that's opposed to men and it never is never happy in a sense until men are miserable and groveling at his feet. Isn't that the natural man, the ordinary man's idea of God? Someone who's ever delighting in punishing us who's altogether against us, wants to keep us down. And therefore, God and the whole of religion has been regarded by men and women as something entirely opposed to us. Oh, there's no greater travesty than that. To believe that, I say, is to believe the very opposite of what is true. The very first beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are others, you know, who don't hold that view, but their view rather is this that uh, to be a Christian is the result of a man's own effort. And that Christians are people who uh, have made a great effort and uh, have decided and desired to live a better life and who've been giving themselves to that. They go to places of worship and they read their Bible and they pray because they're trying to be better people. It's an idea that's come to them. And uh, they're putting this idea into practice. 
and they're trying to find God, and God seems to be remote and uh, is ever elusive and uh, far away from them. Well, that's their idea of Christianity, that it's something human primarily, some human activity, something man does, and that God seems to be reluctant to respond, but that man goes on seeking and searching and at last uh, discovers and arrives. How many have got that view of Christianity? But all this, I say, again, is something which is entirely and utterly wrong. My dear friend, the first statement of the gospel is this, that it is something that comes from God. It is God's action. It is God's activity. Now, that is the whole message of the Bible. I don't care where you open it, you'll find that that's its message. Man started, according to the Bible, in a right relationship to God. But in his unutterable folly, he turned against him. And he went astray, as I'm going to show you in a moment, and suffered all the misery that he's still suffering. And you know the whole message of the Bible is just to tell us this, that God, far from saying to himself, well, if man has chosen that way, let him carry on and let him reap the consequences of what he's done, God, instead of saying that, has done the exact opposite. There is no message in this book except this, that the very God whom men insulted and against whom they rebelled is the very one whom himself is so concerned about them that he has done something and that the only thing that can be done to rescue them and to redeem them. You can only, you have only to start reading the early chapters of the book of Genesis to discover that. You will find that the moment men sinned, God came to him and said, look here, in spite of this, I'm going to do something about it. He gave a promise to the effect that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. And as you read through your Old Testament, what you find? You just find God uh, keeping this same promise before the people. He keeps on sending messengers, and he keeps on sending this one great message, that he himself is pledged to do something about man in sin, and that he's going to redeem him and to rescue him. It's God who sends the message. And here it is here for us, Perfectly summarized and put in these verses, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Seth, you are God. It's God who's taken the initiative. It's God who's spoken. Now, my friend, let me invite you, as a fair-minded person, read your Bible and test any views that you may have had hitherto of God and of Christianity in terms of what the Bible says. You read through that Old Testament, and this is what you'll find, that those children of Israel were ever wandering away from God and would have gone to utter destruction if God hadn't gone after them. God tried to prevent their going along the wrong road, but when they wouldn't listen, he still didn't forsake them. He went after them. That's what all this chapter is about, as I've said. It's God all along. It's God sending his preachers and his servants. It's God giving the message. The whole thing is from God from beginning to end, and of course, above and beyond everything else, the message of the Bible is this, that God so loved the world that he gave, he sent into it, his only begotten Son. 
He sent him into it. And he came as a babe and he lived as a man. And he suffered and endured. He even died upon a cross. God sent him to do it. In order that you and I might be redeemed and reconciled unto God. And might enjoy a new life. It's all from God. Have I made it plain? Is it clear to you? Is there anyone I wonder still left with this terrible notion and idea that God is somehow against us? My dear friend, it's because God looks upon us and because of God's heart of eternal love that you and I are still here and are able to consider this very gospel. God, the God who created, is the God who saves. It's God's initiative, God's action from beginning to end. Well, that is our first point then, that it is a message from God. A great announcement from God. Let us look in the second place at this, the condition of those to whom the message is addressed. To whom is God sending this message by his servant, the prophet? And the answer is put before us here very graphically and in a great picture. It is to those who are waging a warfare. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned. Now this again is one of those first fundamental points of this biblical message and of the whole Christian gospel. According to the Bible, we all of us by nature and until we become Christians are in this state of warfare. What's it mean? Well, it means, if you like, a kind of hard service. Or to put it still more graphically and simply, we all know something about what warfare means. It means a time of trouble and a time of travel. That, according to the message of the Bible, is the state of mankind. And it is to such people that this message comes. We are in a state of warfare. Need I pause, I wonder, to emphasize that? And to convince anyone who is present of the truth of the statement? Are you in a state of peace, my friend? Are you at peace within yourself? Can you say that there's no warfare in your life as far as you are concerned? That there's no ripple on the surface of the sea of your soul? Is there no struggle there? Do you find it a simple and an easy thing to be good and to keep straight? Is there no struggle with lust and passion and desire and envy and jealousy and all these things? Is your life perfectly calm and equable and quiet? Is it? Every honest person knows at once that it isn't. There is a terrible warfare, a terrible struggle in the human breast. There is no peace, hath my God, to the wicked, and how true it is. And then what about your relationships? What about the state of affairs between you and others? Yes, between you and your parents. Between you, perhaps, and your husband or your wife. Between you and your children. 
What about the relationship between you and people with whom you work and amongst whom you live and in all the associations of life? Is it peace? Well, again, we all know perfectly well that the answer is it is warfare. There's no rest, there's no quiet. It's struggle. Life is difficult. Life is overwhelming. Things seem to get us down, as we say. Frustration, that's the word of today, isn't it? We are battling against something. We are always hoping that it's going to be better. We've been promised it's going to be better. The politicians have always promised us it's always going to be better. Every war is going to be the last war. It's only due to some particular person. We ourselves, we are told, are all right. If only we're given a chance, and at last we're going to do it. But it doesn't come. We looked for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble, warfare. In all life and its associations, within and without, its fighting, its struggle, its travel. And the world today is painting this picture very eloquently, isn't it? I needn't keep you. The newspapers are painting this picture very much more perfectly than I can hope to do. You see the warfare and the struggle there, in all the litigation and the cases and the thefts and the robberies, and all the insecurity and all the moral muddle and all the fatigue and the weariness of it all. I'm not condemning people when I say this. I'm sorry for them. I've often said from this pulpit, and I say it again tonight, I don't agree with those who think that the modern craze for pleasure and entertainment is something to be denounced. And I'll tell you why. People are living on pleasure and hungering and thirsting for it in order to get out of this terrible struggle if they can for an hour or two. It's because life has defeated them and has got them down. They're wretched. They're unhappy. They can't spend an evening at home happily with their own thoughts. Why? Well, because they're unpleasant. They're miserable. So you see poor women even locking up their homes, leaving their little children in it, and going away on an outing. I can understand them. The trouble is they find this boredom unutterable and insupportable. They've got nothing they can rest on within themselves. They must have some pleasure outside themselves. It's warfare. And why is life like this? Why should life be a warfare, a perpetual warfare? Well, our verses answer the question. There are two words here which answer the question. The first is what is called iniquity. And the second is what is called sin. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now what do these terms mean? What is iniquity? Well, iniquity is perverseness. It's wrongness. And mankind is in this state of warfare because mankind has become perverse, twisted. It isn't what it was meant to be. Now there again is a great principle which is taught in the Bible everywhere from beginning to end. My dear friend, this world in which you and I find ourselves tonight was not meant to be like this. It wasn't even created like this. It's become like that. 
All that you and I know and all that you and I see is something twisted. It's perverted. Man isn't meant to be as he is. Life isn't meant to be like this. All this is the result of this twist, this perversion, which has entered into life and entered into the world. And the other word sin can be defined in this way. It means, if you like, that a man misses the mark. He's shooting, but he doesn't hit the bull's eyes to one side or the other. He shoots an arrow, and again it misses it. He isn't doing what he ought to be doing. He isn't where he ought to be. He misses the mark, and that is blameworthy. Now the Bible tells us that that's the cause of this warfare. That man made by God is not what he was. That man in his folly listened to the tempter, the evil one who came in. And as the result of that, this twist has come into his nature. You see, he should never have done that. Instead of behaving as he was meant to do and as he had been doing, he twisted himself round. He turned away from God. And everything's gone wrong ever since. He's not in the right alignment. He's not facing the right way. He's not functioning as he ought to function. He's lost his balance. He's twisted. He's perverse. He's wrong. He's blameworthy. He misses the mark. He's not on the dead center. That's his trouble. Now, you can't understand this Christian salvation without understanding that. It is because of this iniquity and this terrible thing called sin that life has become in this world what we all know it to be by experience. Now that's the great message of this book. It comes into a world of men and women who are like that. And it doesn't hesitate to tell us that our whole condition is blameworthy and that we are suffering this warfare, well, because we've sinned against God and because God will not allow us to be happy while we're in the wrong relationship to him. Now, I don't hesitate to say that. This is how the Bible puts it. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, it's true, isn't it? You can't buy peace. Some of the most miserable people in the world tonight happen to be millionaires. They can buy their wives, but they can't buy peace and happiness. They can buy drink, they can buy motor cars, they can buy racehorses, they can buy almost anything, but they cannot buy peace. They're trying hard, but they're failing miserably. Money won't do it. Intellect and understanding, knowledge and learning, education and culture, acts of parliament, they can't do it. I'm not denouncing these things. I'm simply saying that they can't give men peace. Because to be learned is not to have peace, unfortunately. To have great understanding doesn't give men peace. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. And unhappiness and wretchedness tonight is not confined to any one stratum of society. There is no essential difference between the so-called West End and the so-called East End of London. There is no difference between the so-called Great and the so-called Small. They're all equally in this warfare and all equally unhappy. A man may have a very elevated and exalted position, and yet he may be the victim of jealousy and envy, malice and spite and smallness. 
and his moral life and his moral relationships may be foul. No, no, this thing I say runs right through the whole of life. And according to the teaching of these two verses, as it is the teaching of the Bible everywhere, man is doomed to this warfare until he gets right with God. God, I say, will not allow anything else here to received of the Lord's hand. Double. For her sins. My dear friends, we may not like this doctrine. None of us by nature likes it, but it is as certain as I'm standing in this pulpit. The way of the transgressor is hard. You turn away from God, I say, you land in misery and, and in warfare. Sin is a hard taskmaster. It leads to misery. It leads to wretchedness. It leads to tension. It leads to upsets, unhappiness, and all that we are seeing in life today. It's all due to iniquity and sin, and God is pronouncing judgment upon it all. And the greatest folly of men at this moment is not the folly of building and making hydrogen and cobalt bombs, it's the folly of thinking that by anything he can do himself, he can bring real peace either within or without. It is the forgetting of God. It is the belief in himself and in his own innate powers. Oh, I hope to go on with this great chapter. Let me anticipate to this extent. We are told that God will not allow that kind of thing. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Why? Here's the answer. Because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. And you can plan and try to establish your utopias, but the Spirit of the Lord will blow upon them. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. Very well, there we, are, there we are given a description of the condition of the people to whom the message is sent. Now then, listen. What is the message that is sent to such people? Now this is the most amazing thing of all. What is its first and its chiefest characteristic? Well, it starts with these words, comfort ye. Comfort. What an astounding thing. To people in that condition, in this state of warfare, because of their iniquity, because of their sin, because of their folly, because of their rebellion against God, to such rebels, to such miserable creatures, the message that is sent is comfort. Go and comfort. And I do want to expand this further statement which reads here in this authorized version that's before me, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, which really should be this, speak ye to the heart of Jerusalem. And what a wonderful thing that is. What's it mean? It means this. God doesn't send his message to us simply in the form of some great intellectual philosophy. 
God doesn't send his message and his messenger simply to tell us to think out certain abstruse thoughts. No, no, God is a God of love. And he knows that our hearts are in trouble and that we're weary and tired and that we're in this warfare and are exhausted and have spent all our money, our armaments have gone and we're defeated. And what does he do? He speaks to our heart. He speaks to us as we are and at the point of our greatest need. Oh, the message of God is one that comes to us in Christ and comes to us exactly where we are. You know the Lord himself put that in a, in a perfect picture which he once painted. He pictured a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and that this man fell amongst thieves and was wounded and left there on the road. And certain people passed him by, but the man whom our Lord praised crossed the road and went to the man where he was and dealt with his wounds and took him to his inn and paid for him. He dealt with the man exactly as he was and where he was. And that's what the gospel does, speaking to the heart of Jerusalem. What a wonderful thing this is. That however weary and tired and exhausted and sad we may be, the gospel of Christ comes to us exactly as we are. God knows all about us, in other words. He knows our condition. He knows all about us. And he sends this great message of comfort. Yes, my friend, it's a message of comfort. Not, let me say again, primarily a call upon us to do something to save ourselves. For what's the use of doing that to a man who's exhausted? If my first picture is right, that we're in a state of warfare and that we're tired and weary and exhausted and don't know how to go on another second at our wit's ends, at the end of our tether, absolutely defeated, what's the use of coming to such a person and saying, now look here, take up this new philosophy, take up this new morality, turn over a new page, start living a different life. He's tried it, she's tried it, they've failed. But thank God that isn't it. It isn't exhortation. It isn't an appeal to us, I say. It isn't the announcement of some new kind of program or some wonderful new idea which man has thought out for himself and which you and I have got to implement and to put into practice. No, no, that wouldn't be comfort, would it? I've never found it particularly comforting to be confronted by the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount. There's not much comfort in being told, be ye therefore perfect, in and of itself. But you see, the gospel doesn't tell us things like that until it's told us something else first. And that something else is this great good news that is here in these two words, comfort. And God repeats it, comfort, comfort my people. What is it then? Well, it's the announcement, the proclamation of the greatest and the most surprising, the most astonishing good news that has ever come into this world of time. What is it? Well, here it is again in two words. First and foremost, pardon. Speak unto her. Tell her that her iniquity is pardoned. What's it mean? Well, my dear friend, what it means is this. Here I say we are in this state of warfare as the result of our own actions, because of our sin, because of our iniquity. 
We are reaping what we richly deserve. The wages of sin is death. We are simply receiving our wages. That man who wakes up on a Sunday morning with a splitting headache, he's getting the wages for what he did the night before. The moral muddle of today is the wages of what people have done. They didn't think of consequences. And all the troubles and all the arguments and all the unhappiness and the bickerings, where have they all come from? They are the results of actions taken by those very people themselves. They are the consequences of their sins. And yet I say the message that comes is this. It is a message of pardon. God comes to us and tells us that though all this is true of us, He is prepared to forgive us. And the first step of getting out of this warfare and experiencing deliverance is, I say, that our sin must be dealt with. It comes to this, doesn't it? In our muddle and in our mess in this warfare, We ourselves have failed completely, and nobody else can help us. The whole world lieth guilty before God. Everybody is in this state of misery, as I've been emphasizing to you. Well, how can we get out of it? My friend, there's only one answer. We must, I say, get right with God. It was from being wrong with God that all these things have come. And the only way to get rid of them is to start at the beginning and to go back where we failed, to get right with God. But we can't do it ourselves. Here comes the message. God has done it. Tell her, he says, that her iniquity is pardoned. God, the very God whom we've offended, is offering us this pardon, this free pardon. He isn't calling upon us to do anything. He's simply telling us, look here, I'm pardoning you. And listen to this, which is still more marvelous. He tells us that he is pardoning us because he is satisfied with the punishment. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins, his justice is satisfied. This is the very heart of the gospel. God doesn't just decide to say, all right, I'll forgive you now. No, no, God can't do that. God is just and holy and righteous. And God has said that he's going to punish sin, and God does punish sin. Well, then how can he forgive us, you ask, in this way? He meets out the punishment, and he's satisfied with what's been done. What does that mean, says someone? My friend, that's just another way of telling you of what happened nearly 2,000 years ago on a cross on a hill called Calvary just outside Jerusalem. What was it? Well, there is the Son of God nailed to a tree. And there I hear him out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I hear him saying, it is finished. What is finished? What's happened? Well, this iniquity, this mine has been dealt with. God has punished it in the person of his only begotten Son, and he's satisfied. His justice, his righteousness is satisfied completely. The death of Christ is enough. Our sins have been dealt with, and they've been taken away. And I say it is because of that that God announces pardon and forgiveness. In the blood of Jesus Christ. 
The thing that has estranged us from God has been dealt with. The way to God is open again, and we are reconciled to him in Jesus Christ, his Son. Pardon. And then the second thing. The second thing is the change in our condition. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her. What? Well, that her warfare is accomplished. That her warfare is now at an end. There's going to be an entirely new and changed condition. And that's the next step in this gospel. First of all, reconciliation with God and pardon of sins. And then... Well, we are taken out of that awful state in which we were, and we are transferred into another state, and into a different condition. The warfare has come to an end. Being justified by faith, says Paul, we have peace with God. Not only that, we are put into an entirely different state. God forbid that anybody should think that Christianity is merely an announcement of the forgiveness of sins. It is that, but that's only the beginning, my friend. You don't stop just at being forgiven. What God offers you here is this, that you'll be taken right out of that warfare and put into a new state. You're given a new life. You're made a new creature. You're given a new nature. Now let me put it like this. How do you interpret this statement? For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Some say it means this. That God has meted out double punishment on the sins of the people. Not of necessity simply multiplying it by two. But that he has given sufficient punishment. And therefore is now prepared to forgive. In a sense that is right as I've just been saying. But I think this means something else and this is it. Tell her, says God to this prophet, that she hath received, which means that she is now about to receive and is receiving of the Lord's hand double. Double what? Double blessing. She has sinned that much, but the blessing she's going to get is not simply balancing that, it's double it. And again, it doesn't just mean twice. It means that though that is true of sin, the grace and the mercy and the love of God are overwhelmingly greater. Listen to Paul saying that. Where sin abounded, grace hath much more abounded. Double for her sins. Though sin was terrible and deserved punishment, God not only has removed the punishment in the death of Christ and given pardon, he gives infinitely more. Oh, again, the Apostle Paul calls that the riches of his grace. I am a preacher of the gospel, says Paul in the letter to the Ephesians. And what am I preaching? Well, he says, it is my privilege to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's he mean by that? My dear friend, no one can ever answer that question fully, but it means some of the things I'm talking about. It means that that warfare will come to an end in that form. You'll find yourself a new person. You won't know yourself. You see, you'll have a new nature and a new mind, a new outlook, new desires. Not only that, you'll be given strength, you'll be given power, 
You'll find that you'll be able to resist the temptation that's always got you down. You'll be able to conquer where you've always failed. And blessings will come upon you in such measure that you won't be able almost to contain them. You'll find that the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You'll find comforts and consolations which you've never known before. And you'll find that the Bible is no longer boring. It becomes a live book which you enjoy. You'll begin to pray and you'll begin to know God. And when you're bereaved and sorrowing, you'll know that you're not left to yourself. That this friend that sticketh closer than a brother is with you. And you won't find spending a night at home boring any longer. And you won't find that you've got to run off to the pictures or somewhere else night after night or, or else go mad. Why, you'll have something new to think about. And you'll meditate about yourself and God. And about your relationship to God. And about this marvelous life. And you'll begin to understand that this is a mere foretaste of what God has prepared for you. And you'll begin to read things like this in the Bible. That God has prepared for us an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. You'll begin to see that life in this world is merely a little antechamber to that great and glorious life that's coming. Death will lose its terror and its fear. You'll realize it's simply the little rivulet you have to cross in order to enter into this amazing glory and to be with Christ, out of the struggle and the warfare, in peace and bliss. In glory unmixed. That's what it means. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. God telling you and me all that. In our sins. Just as we are. In our failure. In our desperation. Not telling you to haul yourself up when you can't. Telling you that he sent his son down to raise you up. And that his son has borne your iniquity and your sin and all the punishment attached to it. And that he's giving you his own life and all the riches of his grace. Double for all her sins. Is this indiscriminately for everybody? No, you notice there is a limit. Comfort ye, comfort ye who? My people, that's your God. Who are these people? This comfort is for God's people. Who are they? Do you belong to them? Does this comfort come to you? Has your heart been warming as I've been pronouncing it? Do you know tonight that there is nothing in heaven or earth comparable to this gospel? Is it to you the most precious thing in the world and in your own life and experience? Have you been saying as I've been trying to describe it, thank God for it? Yes, I know it. Well, if you have and if you do, you're one of God's people. But what is it that makes anybody God's people? Well, all I can tell you is this, my friend, that these are the marks of God's people. They are people who have realized their terrible iniquity and sinfulness. 
They are men and women who no longer curse God because things are as they are with them and in the world, but curse themselves. They are men and women who cease to say, why does God allow this? And why doesn't God do that? They say, how is it possible for God in his holiness ever to have anything to do with a creature like me? That's the first sign of God's people. They have realized that they deserve richly all they've got and that they deserve infinitely more. The mark of God's child, of one of God's people, is just this, that he or she is simply amazed that God has ever tolerated them at all and hasn't blotted them out long ago. They realize the blackness and the sinfulness and the vileness of their own heart. They have faced honestly themselves and their lusts and passions and all the cruel, hard and wretched things that are within them. And they've given up making excuses. They admit it all. They say, yes, I'm vile, I'm foul, I'm full of sin. There's nothing to be said for me. That's a mark of God's people always. 